0: It's very unlikely in the real world, even if you're in a a country with um, complete and total fantastic healthcare that's government supported, it's very unlikely that you are going to be paid to administer a treatment. And it's also very unlikely that you're going to receive things for free. There is a big problem in research right now that it's difficult to replicate research results from one research study to another. It's also extremely difficult to replicate research results from a clinical trial to the real world. Payments for components of a research study, that's just real life. In real life, an individual is going to pay for a treatment. They are going to pay to get services. So actually using that as part of the research study actually creates a more real life environment and gets, again, data that actually may be more applicable to what's going to happen in the real world. Welcome to MedSider Radio, where you can learn
1: from proven medtech and healthcare thought leaders through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Matthew Amsden is the founder and CEO of Proofpilot, a platform to design, launch, and participate in clinical trials. Nearly everyone accepts the fact that technology has democratized journalism, and transportation, and retail. Now Proofpilot is trying to democratize clinical trials by making it as easy to design and launch a clinical study as it is to write an email, and at the same time, turn clinical trial participation into a universally accessible experience, leading to a journey of self-discovery. Proofpilot medical device customers include a combination of consumer and medical brands like Ju, Asur, Fisher-Wallace, Ember, and ChiliPad, and various others. In this interview with Matthew, here are a few of the topics we discussed. Why clinical trials are not only feasible, but critically important for all healthcare companies. The origin story of ProofPilot and how the company has evolved over time. The importance of letting your early customers drive product iterations. How clinical trials can become a revenue driver instead of a cost center. Various types of remote and hybrid clinical studies that can be conducted on the ProofPilot platform. The risky and costly approach to traditional clinical trials, and how those can be significantly Resolve through a virtual or hybrid model, Matthew's favorite business book, the mentor he most admires, and the advice he'd give to his 30-year-old self. There's a lot more we cover in this wide ranging discussion, but I wanted to call out a few things before we get started. First, if you're new to these MedSider interviews and want to be updated when the next one goes live, head on over to medsider.com and enter your email address. Rest assured, you won't be spammed. In fact, the only time you'll hear from us is when a new conversation goes live. Again, it's super simple. Just visit medsider.com, and right there on the homepage, you'll see the opportunity to enter your email address. Second, if you continue to enjoy these interviews, please give us a rating. In your podcast app, just open the reviews tab and click on the old five stars. Thanks again, it really helps us out. Alrighty, without further ado, let's get to the interview. All right, Matthew Amsden, founder and CEO of ProofPilot. Welcome to the program, really appreciate you coming on.
0: Thank you, it's my pleasure.
1: I'm glad that we're, we're finally able to record this because it's, it's something that, uh, it's a conversation that is sort of, our topic and conversation that's sort of near and dear to my heart just because I'm sort of personally biased towards what you're doing with ProofPilot. But, you know, having worked together for, gosh, probably close to a year now at least, It'll be fun to kind of riff a little bit about our experiences and learn a little bit more about kind of the the origin story, maybe some stuff that I I, I didn't even realize before about about Proof Pilot. But looking forward to the, the conversation.
0: Yeah, I, for anyone who's listening here, I, first I need to say thanks to Scott. Uh, Proof Pilot is where it is today. Uh, without him, I don't think that we would know a lot about what we know now, and he's been one of our biggest champions. Um, though I, I hope that you actually do a, a balanced interview with us, but uh, I just do have to say straight out, you've been great um, and you've been a huge supporter and we, we couldn't have done it without you as a, as a, a customer and a partner.
1: Uh, no, well, I I totally appreciate those those kind words. You you make me you make me sound <laughs> sound way way more instrumental um than than I have been for sure. But no, I appreciate the kind of words, especially coming from you. So, um on that note, I think that that actually that that serves as a little bit of a of a nice starting point. So I'm going to take people back in time to you know, roughly about a year ago. We're um, knee deep with Juve related work, and for those that are listening, that's where I spent you know the better part of what like, the past three or four years focused on is is Juve, which is a a direct to consumer kind of wellness general health company, even though our products are, you know, class two medical devices, it's very much a direct to consumer kind of wellness play. But this was, you know, close to a year ago, we we're recording this in May of 2020. And I think, Matthew, if, I, if my memory serves me right, you you sent us a cold email or sent me a cold email kind of with a reference to Jean Neme, who's the, the founder of Touch slash Digital Surgery, which recently sold to Medtronic. I think he's an investor in in ProofPilot, affiliated with ProofPilot. With, with a pitch around basically sponsoring or running remote clinical trials in a very cost-efficient or cost-effective fashion. And this, it stood out to me because um, I know firsthand that clinical trials are super expensive, like do, doing it doing in the traditional way. And then at Juve, we had an interest in, in sponsoring more clinical trials, not necessarily for like a definitive regulatory pathway, but just to collect more clinical data about our devices and red light therapy in general. So it kind of stood out and it was good timing, but it really opened up some really interesting things with ProofPilot and allowed us to explore some different different channels. So maybe let's start there and help people understand kind of what ProofPilot is and what your platform and offering looks like today.
0: So that is correct. I did. It was one of the very few cold emails I've ever written, but I had been hearing about Juve on other podcasts and in writing. And I, I believe I had recently read an article about Juve and its effect on testosterone. And I was and my thought process was, you know, is this legit. Is this for real? And because of what I do, because of what Proof Pilot is, which is a platform to design, launch, manage and participate in trials, I thought, okay, well, let's actually reach out to these folks and see whether or not they are confident enough in their product to actually run trials to support some of these really very powerful claims and stories that I was seeing out there in the press, both uh, social media press and traditional press. So it is true, Jean Neme is an investor in Proof Pilot. We actually shared an office together for a period of time in, in New York when we were both very young companies. And uh, I understood that you had worked together. That was our connection. So I reached out and uh, you were one of those folks who just kind of got it immediately. And by get it immediately, I, I, I mean the following. So when we think of clinical trials across the board, the first thing that comes to mind is pharma, pills. Vaccines, stuff like that, particularly right now. Uh, In the world that we're living in, we're recording this um, in May of 2020, so a vast majority of us around the world are still in lockdown, though some of us are starting to enter in the world again, and we're all looking for solutions to kind of get back to the world that we knew beforehand. But regardless of whether it's COVID-19 or any other issue, Pharma runs lots of clinical trials on an ongoing basis, about 25,000 a year, actually. So that's number one, you think pharma. Number two, when you think clinical trials, particularly folks who are in the industry, is big dollar signs. The average pharmaceutical trial, uh, this is phase three and phase four mostly, costs well over $10 million. From Proof Pilot's perspective, that means only a very small number of the research questions that are out there in the world actually get answered. In fact, when we look across the overall healthcare ecosystem, only about 30% of medical treatments that are conducted in a U.S. hospital actually have evidence to suggest that they actually work. And that evidence, the gold standard for that evidence to, to create that evidence is a clinical trial. And when you move outside of the hospital, which is where most, most health happens, when you look at health optimization, when you look at health prevention, even there's even less evidence. There's even less clinical trials because they're so expensive. So ProofPilot was originally developed with this idea, and and I I say this fully noting that I am a venture-backed startup, so pardon the colloquialisms here. We started ProofPilot to democratize clinical trials so that we could get to answers about what works and what doesn't to improve health much faster. So circling back to uh, how we became connected, again, that cold email, and it was initially with a, a dose of... Want to say cynicism, but a dose of you know, will they put their money where their mouth is? Can they actually? Will they actually say you know, sure, we are support, confident enough in our product that we actually would like to run some trials on these efforts? And you were,
1: <laughs> we we were indeed, um, and and we'll probably start, certainly uh, circle back to kind of some uh, some of the lessons learned, um, which I think are, are particularly interesting to to most people that are going to going to be listening to this. But Matthew, a couple of data points that really stood out based on kind of how you just described sort of the origins for ProofPilot, what you guys are doing is the average cost of a of a randomized clinical trial, at least in pharma being around 10 million, that cost probably holds true across, you know, biotech and medtech too, or, you know, the, the numbers are going to be big nonetheless. So your point mm-hmm. about, very, you know, very few companies having the 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 capital to allocate towards some of those clinical trials, which kind of leads to that second point that you mentioned only about You know, 30% roughly of, of devices or drugs used in the hospital setting are, are supported by, you know, by clinical data, which is alarming to say, to say the least. So I mentioned all of that and kind of repeating your points because this is a big need, not just for industry to support, you know, claims around products, but it's a big need for anyone that's like interested in health, wellness, a more invasive procedure inside of hospitals to know that these questions around these products or therapies are, are being answered in, you know, based on, on science.
0: Right. Look, I'm relatively young at the moment. I'm 45 years old and in good health. I want to stay that way. And there are so many things out there right now that I can look at to optimize my health and prevent disease, because thankfully at the moment, I don't really have any. You look at all the stuff out there and all the claims that are being made, it's very difficult to figure out what's what and what's not. In fact, so difficult that a lot of us just make end up making decisions based on blind faith or habit, or whomever speaks the loudest, or has the the biggest faults. So, a lot of the impetus behind the health and wellness trials that Proof Pilot does, and and we are very much kind of dual focus in the worlds of kind of n- traditional clinical trials in pharma and medical devices and biotech, as well as the non-traditional health and wellness space, we do that because uh, due to personal interest. We, we actually want to know what works. And there just isn't a lot of data out there because the return on investment for a dietary supplement or a health and wellness device, it's just not there. It's not even there for a lot of the pharma and medical device uh, world. And so there are a lot of treatments that might work for a very small group of individuals uh, for a very unique disease state that don't get the attention that they deserve from an evidence perspective because there's simply not the return on investment to spend $12 million on a trial.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt and there has to be a lot of people that are listening to this that are in positions to influence whether or not clinical trials get done. But because of that ROI concern, right? If it's not mandated by a regulatory body and the ROI isn't there, the study likely just won't just won't get done. And that's kind of sad because there's likely to be so many insights and learnings gleaned, you know, from a product or therapy in the marketplace and, you know, because Because you have to look at, you know, ROI type of, you know, ROI numbers. It's a critical consideration.
0: And another thing to note here is not every clinical trial needs to go to an FDA. Let me put it a different way. Not every clinical trial needs to be done because the FDA requires it. There are a lot of questions out there in the world that do not require an FDA review or an FDA approval. And in many cases, you'd have to be a masochist to do a trial in the old model if the FDA wasn't requiring it. And that, again, right. just means that the FDA requires it. We don't get an answer to what works and what doesn't. And I think that that's a real blank space in our overall society. We're making a lot of decisions about really important concepts about what we're doing to prevent illness, uh, what we're doing to treat uh, illness at home, um, in society. We're, we're not using real data to make those decisions because the data isn't there. And that's where yeah. we really kind of got this concept of proof pilot going.
1: Yeah, you're I could agree with you more and I, I want to here in a minute kind of go back in time and learn and learn a little bit uh, more about the origin stories of a proof pilot and how it's your company has evolved um over the years but one quick point on this topic just to kind of wrap a bow on this this kind of this first part of the conversation is that what stood out and I I'm, I'm going to speak from um from Juve's perspective what stood out in kind of initially looking at proof pilot and what you were trying to do was a couple things. And one of them, I already mentioned that from my perspective, being involved in medtech most of my professional career, I know that clinical trials are expensive. They're very expensive to do in a, in a traditional, traditional fashion. Even, even a small scale clinical trial is going to be likely hundreds of thousands of dollars when it's all said and done. And so, you know, balancing that against a, you know, a, a desire to collect more data kind of creates a little bit of a conflict, right? There's a, um, those two things typically don't, don't align or something has to give, right? Either you have to allocate more funds towards clinical trials or just not do them. And so the fact that ProofPilot was in essence allowing through a really, you know, innovative kind of compelling software platform to, to fund clinical trials in a remote fashion, it seemed like, wow, this could be, this could be a way to actually, um, you know, do some early, you know, early clinical studies on our, on our products in a very, very efficient way, and on top of that, which I think maybe you'll you'll get to as you kind of you know chat as we, as we chat about kind of the, the how Proof has evolved, but instead of just looking at clinical trials as a cost center that you almost, you need to allocate capital, it's a hard cost to get data in return, we kind of theorized that you know, maybe this actually could be a revenue driver right if people and and juve is a little bit different just because we're kind of we serve a direct to consumer um kind of wellness audience but i think Mm -hmm. it's an important consideration for anyone that's listening that does have a little bit of a similar type of commercialization approach and that you actually by by getting customers involved early in some of this clinical data there's a high likelihood that they may actually they may actually become customers which is really unique to my knowledge that hasn't really been explored in, in in great detail um Previously, so anyway, it's kind of it's kind of a cool concept where where now you know clinical trials could be actually could be a revenue driver or or at least a break even <laughs> kind of channel for for a lot of a lot of companies. So and we can kind of get 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 into that in a little bit more detail later on in the discussion. But I wanted to kind of call it out in case uh, in case those are those who are listening are are trying to wonder like how what's the uh, what's the big takeaway you know for um, for biotech medtech uh, right. you know pharma pharma companies. So. Unless there's anything else that you want to add right now, maybe now is a good time to kind of, you know, go back, rewind the clock a little bit and go back and learn a little bit about, about how you got ProofPilot off the ground and, you know, kind of how it's evolved over time.
0: Yeah, sure. So first I should say, and this will come to a surprise to a lot of people, I'm actually not a trained researcher. I don't have a PhD. I didn't go to university or to college uh, to be a researcher. I, I, I have a business background, uh, and that business specifically is in service logistics and marketing. But what's really unique about the kind of approach that we take is clinical trials are actually really complex logistical challenges that have a science question built into them. So as opposed to me being more focused like a lot of researchers are on my actual research question like maybe I'm an ophthalmologist or maybe I'm a cardiologist or maybe I'm an immunologist someone That their primary focus is on what the research question is. My primary focus is on the research methods, essentially the logistics. So I started my career in a big public policy research and consulting firm. And this was about 10 years ago. At that point, many Western governments identified HIV as a solvable issue. We know what causes HIV, we know how to prevent HIV. And so if we experiment with a lot of different things, maybe we can change people's behaviors and actually make HIV go away. Now that sounds super naive today, but 10 years ago, there were a lot of policymakers in the Western hemisphere in Europe that really thought that. I was one of the younger people in that particular organization, and they were noting that I was doing a lot of things online. And by online at that point, 10 years ago, it meant that I was doing some blogs. And they came to me and said, you know, we're having a hard time engaging our population in the ways that we used to do so. And we're having a hard time using traditional clinical trial recruitment techniques to get young gay men and um, intravenous drug users into trials. You know, this is a situation where most of the individuals that they were looking for considered themselves healthy. They saw zero incentive to go into a study clinic to be involved in a HIV trial. And in fact, many of them were afraid to go into that clinic because they might be outed by someone on the street. So noting that a lot of the traditional locations that were recruiting tools were closing because this population was moving online at, in large numbers gay men tend to be technology early adopters, they said, you know, can you recruit a couple of people for us online? And we shrugged our shoulders and said, sure. I didn't really know that there was a whole world at that point of clinical trial recruitment, but certainly the world that existed 10 years ago was not looking at online recruitment uh, mechanisms like they are today. We became fairly successful with that. And the next step was, uh, you know, a number of academic institutions got involved. We became a separate company. And they started to say, you know, We're having a really good, great time recruiting individuals online. Can we actually collect a little data online as well? And we shrugged our shoulders and said, sure. A little bit later, they said, you know, we're collecting a little bit of data online. Can we actually do some interventions online as well? And again, we shrugged our shoulders and said, sure. Fast forward to 2012, 2013, we were doing large scale phase two, three, and four trials completely and totally online primarily, again, for a gay male audience looking at various interventions and techniques to reduce um, and treat HIV. I don't think I'm being overdramatic when I say this, but every single one of these efforts was a complete unmitigated management disaster. And remember here, I actually came from a management, marketing, and business background. So what I was seeing these researchers go through might have been calm con- to them. It was a complete New challenge for me. I was just—I considered a lot of what I saw completely unacceptable. I don't think that any one of the studies that we were doing could have been more of a problem. We, at that point, were creating uh, every technology solution from scratch. You know, we were pulling together different open-source solutions, and we were just layering that software development process on top of the already already fraught research planning process. It took a year or more for the researchers to actually design the protocol. And then they'd give us a big Microsoft Word document and say, go for it. We'd take six months and develop the infrastructure. And inevitably two weeks be- before the study was about ready to launch, the researcher would say, hey, wait, 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 I've got a new idea. And they change that idea and their protocol document and expect that it would take that same 15 seconds to change the research infrastructure that we created. Anyone who has ever developed software before knows that making a change in a a piece of software, particularly an important one, often has a whole variety of cascading effects. And so we were often pushing out software that was very fragile because we were making changes at the last minute. In addition, all of these research studies, because they were designed by researchers, oftentimes in conferences and on Microsoft on in Microsoft Word, these studies were completely oriented around the researcher. Participants were often treated as an afterthought, and they felt like cows that were jabbed with treatments and milked for data. And then there were all of these inconsistently applied regulations and kind of folklore around these regulations. It made it disconnected systems. It made success really difficult in any one of these efforts. And for those of us um, who are part of the LGBT community, finding solutions for HIV and sexually transmitted diseases, is, it's, a, it's a really important issue. And so it was really frustrating. For every one of these efforts, before we got one of these contracts, we would always look for a solution. And there simply wasn't one, which we found completely bizarre because there are so many of these studies that are are launched every year. And at about the same time, a lot of non-HIV studies researchers started to come to us and say, you know, my population is moving online. I want to run a study like the ones that I see you doing in HIV. And we'd go, great. And we'd say, it's going to be a couple hundred thousand dollars for us to create the research infrastructure. And they'd go, oh, I've got $10,000 or I've got $20,000. So the very first version of Proof Pilot was literally developed for two reasons. The first was I couldn't continue with the chaos that I saw in the research world any longer without a solution that would allow us to be more flexible and adaptable to the research questions that were out there in the world. And secondly, as much as I think HIV is an important issue, there are lots of other issues out there in the world related to health that I'm also interested in. And I wanted a way to bring the efficiencies that I saw in business and technology to the world of research research you know technology has democratized transportation and journalism and created efficiencies for retail and a whole variety of other sectors i wanted to bring those same concepts to the world of research and that was where proof pilot was born
1: got it i love the fact that um, in kind of hearing you explain sort of like some of those origin stories and kind of the early beginnings of proof pilot you know basically shipping and getting getting your your product at the time at least in the hands of researchers Really allowed you to see two things, one is like kind of the maddening logistical nightmares as you kind of explain explained to them uh, that they go oh. through in, in running yeah. these clinical trials, and then also basically letting your customer base tell you what they need, maybe they weren 't overly specific and saying, Matthew, we need this, but based on kind of what they were expressing, you were able to say, you were able to kind of see like this is what would be needed via technology to, to, to meet, you know, to satisfy this, this demand. So I I love that idea of basically showcase, it showcases this concept of, right, of the lean startup, right. And Eric Reese's model of getting, you know, shipping early, getting a a minimum viable product, even if you don't, you know, believe in, in, you know, entirely in that, in that, that idea, but the concept of getting your product in the hands of customers as early as possible to learn, right. And then iterate, Mm -hmm. make improvements, maybe pivot a bit, et cetera.
0: Right. Let's be really clear, though, that the kind of ship early often make uh, make mistakes and break things. That's not really something that you can do in a clinical trial, (laughs) regardless. Even though we're bringing the price down quite a bit, there often was a lot riding on the results of these uh, of these trials. Uh, Whether it was a situation in which an organization was trying to figure out whether or not a product. Um, could get an FDA approval, or whether it was a government agency trying to make policy, putting out a piece of technology out there and having it not work is really problematic. So a lot of what we were doing was creating a solution so we could quickly adapt to trials, and as opposed to creating something new every single time and applying fixes in a software development type orientation, We created a platform that would allow us to author in the same way that you might author a blog post or you might do this podcast and allow changes and adjustments very quickly without having to rely on a developer. And that approach means that we have a validated system without having to go that kind of, let's put something out there and fingers crossed, hope it works because that's really problematic in the healthcare sector.
1: No doubt and I, i'm I'm glad you brought that up because i, I don't want to underappreciate that shipping software is a lot different than shipping something in in kind of a, a regulated you know healthcare environment, but from my perspective at least and and you know I'm sure there's people that would disagree, but the concept of of getting some version of your product in healthcare it's got to be something that actually is sellable and et cetera. So maybe the better maybe the better description would be a minimum minimum sellable product. But nonetheless, I think people that this idea of getting your product in the hands of customers as early as possible in order to glean feedback is critical. I think to any startup, but it sounds like that was especially true with uh, with Proof Pilot.
0: Right. And today, let me tell you a little bit about how we learn and and test uh, in a way that allows us to really think about things in a lower-risk environment, and then bring them to the higher-risk environment. And it's a relatively controversial approach that we've taken, and we get a lot of gruff from it from folks who believe that clinical trials, like serious clinical trials, they're really only done by pharma and a select group of medical devices. Proof Pilot, as I mentioned at the top of this program, we really have two focuses, and the first is that traditional research world. But this traditional research world, they're really risk-averse there's a lot of money in whatever uh, research whatever interventional elements that someone is putting out there into the world and so those organizations by design because they have to try to de-risk everything else um, and that's probably one of the reasons why this concept of a remote and hybrid trial has taken a long time to gain traction within that space is because there's so much risk in whatever that focus item is that It's really hard to think about experimenting with something different in the actual execution of that trial. So we don't introduce a lot of innovation uh, from a clinical trial perspective um, in that particular group that we haven't tested and used and refined many, many times in the health and wellness sector. And that health and wellness sector, particularly now, is very open to looking at clinical trials and doing things in new and innovative ways, because a lot of them are existing in extremely competitive environments. You know, how many supplement manufacturers are there right now that all create the same vitamin D supplement? They're all looking for ways to kind of switch it up and change and find a competitive advantage, create a little additional credibility. So a lot of the innovation from a logistical perspective that ProofPilot does, we actually do with the health and wellness sector first. And in that, we learn what's working and what's not from a logistical perspective and can bring it back to the pharmaceutical and medical device worlds and, and say, look, you know, we've tried this many times. And because our focus is logistics, the logistical component of a clinical trial, we can bring this to you with these lessons. And the scientific questions between health and wellness and the pharmaceutical industry may be different. The business reasons for doing that clinical trial between the pharmaceutical sector and the health and wellness sector may be different. But the logistical components that make that clinical trial run, they're very similar. So we're able to bring those lessons to those risk-averse areas. So when we talk about this world of kind of put things out there early, make mistakes and break things... We don't do that in any sector now, but in the sectors where we are pushing the envelope a little bit, we're doing it in the health and wellness sector first, where if something doesn't go quite right, the product is probably still out there, and the primary goal is not an FDA submission. We're able to bring that material back to the pharmaceutical sector with much less risk than we would have otherwise so everybody wins the health and wellness sector gets uh, the credibility and the um, innovative field that gives them the competitive advantage and the pharmaceutical and medical device sector and academics as well get those solutions that have been tested a couple of times in a very similar experience
1: hey there it's scott and thanks for listening in so far the rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a Premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Kala Health, Nadeem Yared, CEO of CVRX, And so many others as a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.